Okay, let me remind you, we are going through the Gospel according to Luke only in the sense that we're using the chronology of Luke, but we're going to then look in the other Gospels to pull out key elements that aren't necessarily in Luke. And last week we had read the account of Ma- that's actually re- recorded in Matthew chapter 1, because remember, Luke gave us the account of Mary and how the angel Gabriel had spoken to Mary, But now Matthew is giving us Joseph's perspective. And we had read last week how the things that Gabriel had said to Joseph, and that's in Matthew chapter 1. And one of the things that he said was in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, so what we wanted to do was to look at this particular verse in the Old Testament when it was, in fact, prophesied. So 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied this. So if we turn to Isaiah chapter 7, let's look at that prophecy. So again... Let's read from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, to get the context of what was occurring. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, His heart and the hearts of the people shook like the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now and meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of the two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the the fierce anger of resin, and Aram, the son of Ramalia. Because Aram, with Ephraim, and the son, the son of Ramalia, has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make, make for ourselves a breach in its wall, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Okay, so... What God is doing is He is defending now. He is going to defend defend Jerusalem. Because remember what He said. In Jerusalem, we are going to have a king. That king, there are two requirements for the king in Jerusalem. The king in Jerusalem has to be uh, of the lineage of David. That will always be. God had proclaimed it. It was going to be from the lineage of David. And secondly, it was going to be by divine appointment. But now when they say that they're going to set up a new king of Tabil, that's not of the lineage of David, and that will not succeed. Just won't succeed. And God knows it. So God isn't particularly excited with with, uh, this king of Jerusalem at the time, but he's not going to let this be taken out of the lineage of David. Just won't allow it. It will not succeed. And this is going to become further important as we look at the genealogies of Jesus. And, and so, uh, now, now let me just mention, there was also the northern kingdom that's coming against Israel, coming against uh, uh, Jerusalem at this point. For the northern kingdom, 
it was only by divine appointment. So there was a king of the northern kingdom that came by divine appointment. There was no lineage. God promised, for example, to Jehu, four generations will sit on the throne of the northern kingdom. When the fifth generation tried to get it, he was assassinated. So whenever anybody came in without divine appointment in the northern kingdom, they were assassinated. When every, anyone ever came in on the southern kingdom, on, on the land of, uh, of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah, tried to be king, if they weren't of the lineage of David, they could never get the throne. Okay, so reading from verse 8. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now with another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you shall surely not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God, and make it deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I, nor will I test the Lord. So, so what happens is, is uh, Isaiah is sent. Isaiah is sent to speak to to this king, this king uh, uh, Aram, I'm, I'm sorry, he, he is sent to speak to the king Ahaz, the king of, of Jerusalem, and to say, don't worry, you're going to be protected. And he says to Ahaz, ask for a sign, I'll show you a sign so you can have something to bank on. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign, because if God shows him a sign, he's going to have to obey what God tells him to do. So he doesn't even ask for a sign, and that gets gets the prophet upset with him. And then God comes with a sign himself. So he said, you go ask any sign. I guarantee you, you will be okay. Ask for a sign. I'm going to show you a sign, and then you'll know that these kings that are coming against you will not prosper. You'll be okay. So, in verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask for a sign, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his, na- and she will call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and to choose good. Before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So let me give you some understanding on Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy, sometimes within the same sentence of Old Testament prophecy, it could be a prophecy of one event and a second event all within the same sentence. And those two events may have been spread out by hundreds of years. This is typical Old Testament prophecy. The first thing that Isaiah says to him, Isaiah the prophet says to him, is if you won't ask for a sign, God in heaven will show you a sign. Let me give you one of the signs that he is going to show you. He says, he says that, that, uh, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's something interesting about this, about this verse. Because in, in, uh, in, in, in verses 13 and 14, he's, he's talking about the house of David. But in verse 11, he was talking specifically uh, I'm sorry, in, in verse 11, he was talking specifically to Ahaz. So in Ahaz, we don't have the plural for you in English. 
So the, the nearest thing to the plural you in English is y'all, meaning more than one of you. In Spanish, do you have a plural for you? Yeah, so this is typical in many other languages. And, and in Hebrew, there is a plural for you. In English, there is not. So actually, in verse 11, he's speaking to Ahaz, and he says, you, meaning singular you. But now, what happens is, in verse 13 and 14, it's no longer singular you, it is all of you, it is you all, it is y'all, it is house of David. He is speaking to the house of David. He says, I'm going to give you a sign now. And the sign is, is in verse 14, he says, the Lord himself is going to give you, you all, in verse 14, all of you, the whole house of you, a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, there has been a lot of controversy over whether this is really the word virgin or whether it just means maiden, uh, uh, an unmarried woman, or what this really means. And, and I have on my website, actually, under the individual messages, one of the messages, I posted it in, in about 2006, it's, it, I entitled it, Virgin Means Virgin. And it's, it's the only message on my site that is not by me. And it's, it's a message by uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, which is probably the greatest Messianic scholar alive today. And I use a lot of his material, in fact. But he talks about this from a very clear standpoint. This word, Alma, is the only word that always means virgin, young virgin, always in the Bible. And he gives numerous examples of that. So, so that's, that's not particularly debated anymore. But what's most interesting is people will say, oh, well, this doesn't mean virgin. This just means maiden, an unmarried woman. Well, God is going to show a sign to Israel. He is going to demonstrate a sign to the nation of Israel, to the Davidic kingdom. If all that sign is, is that an unmarried woman is going to have a baby, that's not much of a sign, because you can go to Memorial Hermann Hospital, and I bet half the births that occur in the county hospital are to unmarried women. Does that mean that all of those are immaculate conceptions? Not likely. Just because an unmarried woman has a baby, that's not a sign at all. That happens all the time. All the time. This is, I'm going to show you something really special here. Not only that, so, so this controversy as to whether this really means virgin is coming from the Jewish community and coming from the Jewish community after the birth of Jesus Christ. But if you look at the Septuagint, which was written 200 B.C., so 200 years before Jesus came on the scene, the Septuagint was written. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint using, uses the, the word portinos for virgin in this. So it translates this to Greece, Greek, and it, the Greek word is porkinos, which always means and only means virgin. Only means young virgin in Greek. So in other words, the rabbis of that day who were translating what is our Old Testament into Greek, 200 B.C., said this word really means virgin. You see what I mean? It's only after there's been controversy as to, you know, really, was Jesus really the Messiah, that this view started coming in. Alright, so in any case, um, this is a sign, and the sign is clear, it's going to be a virgin. Now, let me ask you this. If you say, well, I'm really, I'm really scared about this organic exam that I have next week, 
And I say to you, don't be scared because I'm going to give you a sign to prove to you that you will do well. And the sign is this. In 700 years, such and such is going to take place. That will be your sign that you will do well next week. You're going to go, ah, that's not very helpful to me. No, no, don't worry. It's a sign. And that's going to take place in 700 years, and then you're going to be really happy. But my exam is next week. That doesn't mean anything to me. So you, won't, you would take no comfort in that, right? So in other words, if Isaiah comes and says, a virgin, a virgin is going, there is going to be a virgin to come. This is in the future tense. There will be a virgin, and the virgin is going to be with child, and she's going to bear a son named Emmanuel. If this is going to take place in the distant future, what comfort would that be to this king? He needs a sign right now to know that, that he's going to be okay. But remember what I told you. In the Old Testament, you can have prophecies all in the same sentence. Some of that portion of the sentence deals to one period, another portion to another period. There is not dual f- fulfillment. This is not a dual fulfillment. What there is, 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 is um, it's not double f- fulfillment, but it's double reference. Meaning that in this verse, there's a reference to one event, there's a reference to another event. So what he says after that, he says in verse 15, He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil, and to choose good. For the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, but but before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So very interesting. So now it's talking about a boy who's about eating curds and honey. But if you look back up in verse 14, it actually says in verse 14, in the Hebrew it says, Behold the virgin... There's the definite article there. The definite article, the virgin, in Hebrew, that definite article is there, so that tells the virgin of a certain context. So what you do is you look back throughout that chapter and you see, is there any reference to a virgin? There's no virgin, so you go back to the virgin. There is a the virgin in reference to the woman's seed. So, so actually, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's very interesting. When God curses Adam and Eve for eating the fruit, Eve's curse, there's, an, there's a curse upon Satan that occurs. And then he said, and the woman's seed will bring deliverance. The woman's seed, which is very unusual. Generally, it's the seed of the man that's spoken of. But it's speaking of the seed of woman is going to bring this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman. He's making reference to the fact that there is going to be a seed from a woman which is very unusual. Always it's the seed of the man, except here. In Genesis, it's speaking about that. So that may well be a reference right back to the seed of woman, because then we know, then 700 years later, that a virgin has a child that doesn't have an earthly father. So then if you look down in verse 15, what's this other child that's being spoken about? He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and to choose good. But before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Again, there's the definite article with reference to the boy. Well, what the boy? Well, look back in that chapter. 
Look back in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit. This is the boy he's speaking of. So in other words, before this boy that I'm holding in my arms, before this boy eats curds and honey, when the time that he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, before this even happens, you are going to be delivered. You want a sign for this time? Here's the sign for this time. This boy in my arms, before he can choose evil, knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, before he even has that level of discernment, you're going to be delivered. And deliverance rapidly came. But there's another prophecy that's concerning Emmanuel 700 years out. This is typical Old Testament prophecy, which unfortunately many people don't understand and, and they have to really you know, make contorted things over these things that you can have in the same sentence in Old Testament prophecy, things that apply to two separate periods. It is not double fulfillment. There is one fulfillment for each prophecy. If there's multiple fulfillments, then you've got real sorts of problems you, you come up with. But this is the verse that he's talking about that he pulls in that now... Is he saying in Matthew chapter 1, he's talking about to, uh, um, to Joseph. This is the verse he comforts him with. He says, this is now the fulfillment of this verse. So it's really interesting the way he grabs these sort of things. Now let's start looking at the genealogies, the genealogy of Jesus. So there's two genealogies of Jesus. One is in Matthew chapter 1, and the other one is in Luke chapter 3. So there's two genealogies of Jesus. One of the genealogies, remember because Luke is, is giving us uh, um, Mary's view. Remember the angel comes and appears to Mary in Luke. He gives us Mary's genealogy. Luke does. In Matthew, he gives us Joseph's genealogy. Now sometimes people will say the genealogy in Matthew has to do with the royal line. And, and the genealogy in, in Luke has to do with the human line. And that's actually just the opposite. What Matthew is showing through his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, he's showing that Jesus could not have been the offspring of Joseph. He absolutely was not Joseph's son. So let's look at this Matthew chapter 1. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abiha. Abiha was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Elkayim. Elkayim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Aliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matham. Matham, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So it's a very interesting portion, very interesting portion of, of, about this, this genealogies. Um, so Matthew has several things that he does that's, that's very non-Jewish, in mapping out genealogies. Not totally unheard of, but non-Jewish in particular in the way things were normally done. So in fact, what he does is he skips several generations. There's several generations that he skips here. Uh, They're not skipped in Luke's account, but they're skipped here in this account. And the people that he skips were actually descendants, three of the descendants that were also related to, to Ahab and Jezebel. And he disliked them so much he skipped Three of them. Now, it was not unheard of to skip generations. It was just unusual. So, in other words, in Second Chronicles 22, verse 9, uh, it talks about the son of Jehoshaphat, which actually was the grandson of Jehoshaphat. So, sometimes they would skip generations saying, we know they're related. So, it was not unheard of. Moreover, what he does, there were more than 14 generations. He's just picking segments of 14, 14, 14. Well, why 14? Well, the word David, this is well understood to Jewish scholars. They understand this. Apparently, the name David has the numerical value 14. So, every name has a numerical value. David has the numerical value 14. And so, he's choosing 14 in each one. But in one of the segments, he only chooses 13. And he doubles David in one segment, and in the next segment, he doubles up on David. So he says, for example, in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David, the king. That's one segment. Then it says, David was the father of Solomon. So in the second segment, he doubles up on David, and in one of them, he even goes with 13. But he doesn't say, I'm specifically telling you all of them. Here is the summary. The other thing that he does that's very unusual, that's really quite telling why God would have him do this. He injects the name of women. He injects the name of women in his genealogy. That was unusual, not unheard of in the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, there are two, two genealogies in the Hebrew Scriptures that do the same thing. That's in Ezra 2.61 and in Nehemiah 7.63. Two places where God put in the name of women in genealogies. But he names four women. The unusual thing about these women is all four of them were Gentiles. All four of them were Gentiles. So he's showing in this lineage... Not only women, which is unusual, but he's showing four Gentile women. Women that were not descendants of Abraham. Oh, ho, hum, doesn't have a, you know, may not have some impact in it to you today. But that is huge. The other interesting thing about these women is all of them had some association with sexual sin. All of them had some association with sexual sin. So why name these women of all women in particular. For example, Sarah is not named here. She was a Jewish woman of great prominence. If they're just trying to pull out prominent women, why not pull out Sarah? 
What is he telling us? What might be here in this that he's taking four Gentiles? Well, this is showing that God has a plan for Gentiles. Matthew is writing to the Jewish community here. His audience is the Jewish community. What he's underscoring is God is doing something now. He's going to do something with the Gentiles, but it's not totally unheard of. God was doing something with Gentile women formerly as well. So let's look at the, the women, the women that he, he, he's, he's pulling out here. So he pulls out in Matthew 1, 3, he says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar is a, is, is a Gentile woman. She was the father, she was the mother of Perez and Tamar, twins. This was an ancestral relationship that she had with her father-in-law, Judah. Why would God put this in the line? Well, because God's telling us something. So Tamar has an ancestral relationship. In fact, she's acting, she's making herself out to be a prostitute. She dresses herself up as a prostitute, seduces Judah. Judah doesn't know who he's having sex with. She then bears these two sons, so she is mentioned. So then if you go on down and you go on to verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Well, Rahab was a prostitute in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Tamar, remember, you could find that story in Genesis 38. But in, Rahab was a prostitute in Joshua 2, 1. She, in fact, many times was referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Now, she changed her ways, and she ended up getting married, and she's in the lineage of David, but she came from a background of prostitution. That was her job. You know, the spies go into to, uh, uh, Jericho, and, and whose house do they end up in? They end up in Rahab's house. I mean, they, you know, these are military guys. They end up in Rahab's house. Well, if they had to flee, where are they going to go into? Well, a guy is always welcome in a prostitute's house. You know, the door is always open to, to a, a few spies coming. You know, no problem. So it didn't look unusual for them to go in there. Now, we know why they went in there was not, 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 to, not to participate in prostitution, but they had to hide, and then she hid them on the roof there. And because of that, she saved her whole family. But she had come out of a life of prostitution. There's another Gentile woman that's, that's listed there, and that's in verse 5. Uh, uh, Ruth. Well, Ruth herself didn't have sexual sin, but she came from, she, she was a Moabitess. It talks about Ruth the Moabitess. Moab came because of the ancestral relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. The child was Moab. That generated the Moabites, which resulted in Ruth. Ruth was the product of an ancestral relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. I thought God would be cleaner than this. This is not God. This is people. Right? God didn't make them do this. What God is showing is what people are like and the mercy that he has upon people. And then, then if you look at, at, Matthew, at Matthew 1, verse 6, Jesse became the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Remember, Uriah was a Hittite. Bathsheba was a Gentile. Bathsheba, many people say that she was involved in, in, in adultery. I rather think she wasn't involved in adultery. She was seduced forcibly by David, and you really can't say much when the king does this sort of thing, but... I would rather say that, that, that she was raped by David. Her, her husband was off in war. You have very little recourse when the king does this to you. Uh, um, she was just taking a bath in her home exactly as she's supposed to take it on the roof of her home. But if you go to see where David's home was, 
His was on the top of this hill, so on his rooftop he could see down on all the other rooftops. You know, how convenient for a guy who looks, likes to look upon women at night taking their baths. But this is how it happened. But in any case, she was, she was raped. Do you want to say she was, she was in adultery herself? Maybe so, but certainly she was raped. So all of them had some sexual disorder, something in their lineage, something either of them or in their lineage, and all of them were Gentiles. Well, why would God do this? It was a very interesting question as to why God might do this. But we'll pick that up next time. What I want to tell you this time is why this cannot be, because he says that if you look here that, that, uh, in verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. So in this line is a man named Jeconiah. That's a key name. That's a key name in this lineage. This, this man named Jeconiah. Because if you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 22, look at the prophet Jeremiah chapter 22. I mean, this is so interesting. I find this absolutely fascinating. Look at this prophecy of Jeconiah. So, so uh, Jeconiah turned out to be a really bad guy. I mean, really bad guy. And God proclaimed, you are so bad, that's it. No more coming through your line, Jeconiah. That's it. The king shall never rise through your line. Never again. It's not going to happen. So if you look in, in Jeremiah chapter 22, reading from verse 24. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, that's a shortened name of Jeconiah, Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I will pull you off and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the king, hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? We, why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, land, land. Or let me just mention, O earth, earth, earth. God is now proclaiming something really important. O land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. That's it. I mean, this, not only because of, of how wicked you are, this guy was really wicked. You can read about this in Jeremiah. I mean, his total disrespect for the word of God. He just burn it. He says, this is it. Not only are you going to die and your mother in a land where you weren't born, they're going to take you away to Babylon, but never shall anyone ever of your descendants be on the throne of David. That's it. So, Jeconiah is in this line of Joseph. Had Joseph been the actual father of Mary, uh, of, of Jesus, in a relationship with Mary, Jesus never could have been on the throne of David. Remember, two requirements for being on the throne of David. You had to be of the lineage of David, but you, and, and it had to be by divine appointment. 
but it could no longer be of the line of Jeconiah. So what happened is David had lots of children, particularly with Bathsheba, the promise was made, it's going to come from you, Bathsheba. So Bathsheba had several sons. One of the sons was Solomon. Her, her first child died. The second one was Solomon. From Solomon establishes a line. Goes down to Jeconiah. Jeconiah is so evil, God says, never from that line is the king going to come. Jeconiah suddenly, boom, I cut it off there. And then what does he do? When we go back and we look at Luke, we're going to see in Luke's gospel, Mary was also of this royal line, but not of the line of Solomon. She was descendant of one of, of the, the next son of Bathsheba, named Nathan. She was descendant of Nathan's line. So Nathan tracks right back to David, but not through Solomon, not through Jeconiah. Through Nathan. That's what we're going to see. So she also was of the royal line, but not through Jeconiah, because the promise was said, there was now a third stipulation upon the throne of Jerusalem. You had to be of the line of David, not of the line of Jeconiah, and by divine appointment. God worked all this out. It's no problem for him to work it out. He works this out. So what Matthew is showing us, he is showing us that, that, that uh, Jesus was absolutely not the child of Joseph. Because had he been, even if he had been the adopted child, Joseph would have been the heir apparent, Jesus then would have become heir. Even if he had been adopted child, he could not have been on the throne. Jesus was born of Mary the Virgin. That's who Jesus was born of. Because Matthew then goes on to say later on in the chapter that he was born of the Virgin Mary. So what he's showing is he cannot be the, of the line of Jeconiah. This descendancy. Now, why does he bring up this, 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 uh, these four women? This is really interesting. All of them had this, this, this uh, somehow sexual blemish. And, you know, you, you could come with different theories, but what was clear, what is clear, is God is particularly merciful with sinners, but especially so with the sexual sinner. In John chapter 4, he meets a woman by the well, and we'll hear more about this, but he says to the woman, go and call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you've said rightly you have no husband. Because you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. So, in other words, she sa he says to her, call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And she said, you've spoken rightly, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. But he doesn't say to her, you lying, stinking tramp. He, in a way, accepts the fact of what he says, she says and says, you know, you've spoken rightly that you have no husband. Because they're not your husbands anymore, but you've had a lot of them. But you, you see what he does? He, he just draws her in. Rather than calling her a tramp, he draws her in. Woman is caught in adultery along with a man caught in adultery in John chapter 8. What does Jesus say? He says, I don't condemn you. In, in, uh, uh, so, so Jesus has this amazing kindness toward women who have been caught in some sexual sin. And, and uh, uh, he's reaching out. He's reaching out in a way to them. You know, because it, it's, it's as if, it's as if uh, um, so often women in particular will feel that, you know, I've, I've, I've done this, this great sin. Either I've been raped or I've, I've uh, committed some sexual immorality and, you know, God could never be friendly with me again. And God reaches out particularly in this state. He says, no, 
each one of these women who was very important to me and in a very important generation, each one of them had some blemish upon them. And in fact, if you think about it, just, just let me put it in this context. I want you to think mathematically a little bit. So, you know, you're all educated. You all took a little math. This is just arithmetic. This is really simple. So, a man may, might have 100 sexual acts with his wife in a year. Well, what, how much is 100 sexual acts? Well, if you take a 20-year period, a 20-year period which is about a generation, because say at 20 people start having babies, so, roughly. So, take a 20-year period times 100 sexual acts. That's 2,000 years. So, in other words, there's only 100 sexual acts that bring you back from this day, 2011, back to the time of Jesus. 100 sexual acts have occurred to bring a child, another, sexual, another, another generation, another generation, another generation. A hundred sexual acts bring you back to the time of Christ. Does that make sense? A hundred times twenty years. So that's two thousand years. Two hundred sexual acts times twenty years will bring you back four thousand years to the time of Abraham. There has been a sequence of two hundred sexual acts that link you to your forefather at the time of Abraham. There are 300 sexual acts that bring you back 6,000 years to the dawn of human history, recorded human history. The dawn of recorded human history goes back about 6,000 years. Just 300 sexual acts. What does that tell you? Within that 300, how many of those sexual acts do you think were somehow immoral acts? Outside of marriage, from rape, from incest. Probably many of them. All of us, all of us have these within our lineage. And this is really important because the choices that men and women make in the sexual realm take on the weight of human history, the weight of human existence and underpin human history. Do you understand this? The decisions that men and women make in the sexual realm underpin human history. There's only a hundred sexual acts that link someone today back with someone at the time of Christ. If there are blemishes, if there are blemishes upon us in this way, let me tell you, there are blemishes upon everyone. I have this, this, this teaching on scriptural sexual ethics on my website. It's a six-part series. I encourage you to go there and to listen to that, part, that series in sequence. Let me just... Let's, Read one statement from that. Both liberals and conservatives undervalue sex. Liberals often have no clue as to how valuable sex is. If they did, they would not so liberally use it. Conservatives are often fearful of dealing with sexuality because the self-repression of their lust has resulted in their fantasy life, which is self-condemning. You know, God wants us to deal with these issues, but God does not cast us out. God does not cast us out. He takes four women, Gentile women, who have been through sexual problems in their lives. And he calls them out. He says, these people are special to me. Where you have been, I still love you. You are special to me. He calls them out. I think you ought to go through that series. It is very important and it will become more important to you, even as you consider marriage. It will become more important to you, that series. 
that teaches you how to deal with these things and learn how to get control of these. Because for men, very often, this lustful desire, they feel it's absolutely controlling in their lives. And there is a way to be free of this. Because salvation is not a sham. There is a way to be free of this control of the lustful attitudes in young men's lives. It can be controlled. And you go through this series and there are specific things that will help you deal with it. And the reason I took the time to prepare it is because I've been there and I care about you. I had already figured these things out through the Word of God, but I wanted to come with these series for your sake. For your sake. You go through these things. But if you ever struggle with these things, that like God could never love me the way I am. No, He loves you the way you are and He particularly demonstrates His love for those who have been caught in some form of sexual sin or sexual immorality. He particularly reaches out to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. It is so good. Lord, thank you for the precision of your word, that you watch over your word to keep it. Thank you, Father, for the precision of your word. Thank you, Lord, for keeping the lineage of Jesus Right, the the right lineage. Father, thank you that this was no problem for you. You worked all things out. Father, thank you that you particularly care about those who have been caught in sexual sin, about those who are overcome with sexual sin. Father, I pray for the young people here that you would reassure them of your love and of your deliverance. Father, your mercies and grace abound. Lord, thank you for calling out four Gentile women, four that have experienced or come from the lineage of, of this sort of experience. Father, thank you for your mercies. You are so good to us. Father, I pray your mercies on these young people to draw them into fellowship with yourself, that you draw them to be close to you. Lord, thank you for your mercies in the name of Jesus. Amen.